This morning we began a little two-part sermon mini-series, emphasizing and looking forward to our upcoming door-knocking campaign and the potential Bible studies that we hope and pray will result from that. And we talked about from Peter's first epistle, some of the things that we need to emphasize to both newcomers as well as new converts as we study with them in addition to baptism. We always seem to want to start with baptism. And there's other things that if we want more than just people to get wet and get out, we need to teach them other things. And so we covered those at length from Peter's first epistle this morning. And so tonight we're going to cover some other things that we need to be able to teach to new converts as well from 2 Peter. So please open your Bibles tonight to the second epistle of Peter. And I think I'd be remiss if I did not say once again, I appreciate the prayers that have been continually offered up for our door-knocking campaign and the potential Bible studies that we hope to schedule. But I'm going to ask something else from the men that lead prayers from now on, and indeed from all of us in our private prayers, and that is, not only do we need to pray for Bible studies to result, but that we have the teachers to teach those Bible studies. You know, Jesus prayed, or Jesus told his disciples to pray for workers. And if we have a whole lot of Bible studies that people want, and we don't have the teachers to do it, what kind of a reflection is that on the Lord's church? So I want to take a moment here to encourage every saint to sign up and commit to teaching a personal weekly in-home Bible study. You know, one of the things we heard at Affirming the Faith this weekend was... One of the gentlemen was speaking and he said, What seminar do grandparents have to go to that makes them so bold about showing off pictures of their grandchildren? He said, because whatever that seminar is and whatever it is, it makes grandparents so bold that all they want to talk about is their grandchildren. He said, we need more Christians to go to that so that they're that bold to talk to others about Jesus. And I thought, that's terrific. He's absolutely right. The concept was mentioned, how many seminars do we have to set through before we actually get out there and do what we're supposed to do? How many Bible classes? People say, well, I'm not prepared. How many years and decades have some of us set in Bible classes? It's time to put that knowledge that we've learned setting in these pews for years to work. And so I want to encourage you again. Because there is simply no greater, higher, or more noble calling. There is no greater or more valuable thing on this planet that any of us can be doing with our God-given time and breath and consciousness and resources than to be leading a lost soul to Jesus Christ. Or to helping to hold them there against the wiles and pull of the world because it's about more than just getting them to become a Christian. It's keeping them faithful in Christ or else we have done them a disservice because if they come to know the truth and then they leave, they're worse off in the end than they were in the beginning. So as we talk about Bible study, I want us to understand as we begin tonight in 2 Peter that this is exactly the emphasis that the Apostle Peter puts on the essentiality and the requirement of Bible study and constant Christian growth as a condition of eternal salvation. Peter focuses on Christian growth and Bible study 
as he begins his epistle, as he ends this epistle, and everything in between the beginning and ending of this epistle is about knowing the Bible. If ever there was an epistle that was, could be said the whole thing was devoted to teaching us how important Bible study is it, it's 2 Peter. It's all about it from beginning to end and everything in between. Just as he began his first epistle throughout his entire first chapter in 1 Peter with an emphasis on the incentive that we as New Testament Christians have and that we should always focus on and that we should always start with as well and that is the love of God and the price that God paid for us to cleanse us and give us new life. That is the way he begins his second epistle as well in chapter 1. Look in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, verses 1 through 4. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Brethren, if you want peace in your life, if you want to understand God's grace, that only comes through our knowledge of what God has done for us as we study His Word. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. If we don't have that knowledge, if we don't know what God's Word says, we're not going to have that, that peace and that grace in our lives. As His divine power, verse 3, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through, guess what? The knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. God's given us everything we need to get through this life. Every last thing that we need that pertain to life and godliness, where is it? It's found in our knowledge of Him. If, again, if we don't have that knowledge, we don't... Take advantage of these things. By which, that is the knowledge of Him, by which, verse 4, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is where we have to start with people. We have to tell them about Jesus. We have to tell them what God has done for us. And we have to tell them that from the scripture. We have, them, have to have them understand that it's all about what the Bible says, that there is nothing else besides what God said that matters to us spiritually. There cannot be any other message. There cannot be any other source of our grace and peace and, and everything that we know religiously and spiritually except our knowledge of Him as revealed in the Word. That's why Peter goes on in verses 5 through 11 and says you've got to keep growing. That's verses 5 through 11 in a nutshell. You've got to keep adding to all these virtues. You, you can't stop. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep adding. You've got to keep doing more. He says, in fact, that we've got to add to that knowledge. Verse 5. In verse 9, he explains, and you can read it there in your own Bible. I'm going to paraphrase it. But in verse 9, he says, hey, if you ain't growing, you've forgotten the price that was paid for you to, to start over to begin with. You've got to grow. Otherwise, you, you've forgotten you're cleansing. You've forgotten that cost. You've forgotten what God did for you because you're unwilling to grow for Him. 
As we go on in verses 10 through 11, he says, look, this is the reason you've got to be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. If you want that calling and, and that entrance into heaven absolutely locked down, then keep on growing. Keep on studying. Keep on adding. In verses 12 through 15, he says, I'm going to keep telling you these things till I'm gone, and I'm going to make sure after I'm gone that you know them too. And then, Peter goes on in chapter 1, and he confirms why it is so crucial, why it is so critical, why it is so essential, why it is so vital, why it is so all-important to follow the Bible, the whole Bible, only the Bible, nothing but the Bible, in our Christian walk. And he tells us in these terms, verse 16 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, this is why. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter said, I saw it with my own eyes. I know because I saw. There's no religious leader today. There was no religious leader 500 or even 1,000 years ago or even 1,500 years ago that can make that claim. All of these religions that have come along as the result of men other than the apostles throughout the last 1,900 years, they cannot make this claim. We saw him. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter said, we heard that voice. We were there on that mountain. We saw it and we heard it. Martin Luther. Pick, pick John Calvin. Pick anybody you want. Joseph Smith. Doesn't matter. None of them can make this claim that Peter makes right here. He said, we saw it. We heard it. We heard God. Verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, God, we, we've got it confirmed right there. God kept his, every promise in the Old Testament. It's right there in Jesus when he sent his son. We have that prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He said, hang on to what we're telling you because we were there and you hang on to it with everything you've got with every breath you take. Knowing this first. And brethren, this is what we've got to get across to people as we study with them. This is what we've got to get across. If you read this morning's bulletin article, you know there's people that will say, well, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to. No, you can't. You cannot make the Bible say anything you want it to. You either accept it as it's written or you reject it as it's written, but you can't change it. This is what they need to understand. Knowing this first. That no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpret. It's not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of black and white, book, chapter, and verse. This is what it says. These are the other verses that connect to it. And that's what they say. It's not a matter of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, it wasn't a matter of private interpretation, and it's not now. It says what it says, it means what it means, and it says what it means, and that's the end of it. Give me the Bible. But then, Peter goes on to the apex, the, the mountaintop of this very epistle. As far as, as I can see in my studies, 
the theme, the center, the, the, the pinnacle, the apex, the absolute top of the mountain of this entire epistle for me. Seems like Peter's leading up to it all the way through the first chapter and he's explaining it the rest of the way down the other side of the mountain. But the apex is chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. This is why it is so crucial to emphasize constant and continual Bible study. Brethren, this is why it is so important that new converts are not just taught baptism, but they're taught that the Bible is the Word of God and it's the only thing we have that will get us to heaven and nothing that contradicts it will get us there. The apex. Why it is so important to constantly and continually emphasize Bible study to every Christian from the newest convert who's still wiping their hair coming out of the baptistry to the oldest and most senior saint in the assembly. This is why Bible study is so important. Chapter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. The King James Version says damnable heresies. Even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, some versions say greed or greediness. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Brethren, false teachers have always been and will always be the bane of the religious world. For those of you that don't know what Bane means, I looked it up. It means deadly ruin, harm, or death. The cause of distress, death, ruin, or deadly poison. Again, I say to you, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, false teachers always have been and always will be the bane of the religious world. Jesus in his day, when he was foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, verses 11 through 13 and verse 24, said, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus was talking there about what was going to happen to the temple and to Jerusalem. And it, it took place, as we know, in 70 AD. And he told them that between the time he was speaking those words and the destruction in 70 AD, that there's going to be a lot of false prophets arise. And they were going to deceive a lot of people. They were going to take a lot of people with them. If possible, they'd even deceive the elect. The Apostle Paul, he spoke of false teachers that would arise from within and among the Ephesian congregation, and maybe he was even talking about the Ephesian eldership. He said in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 32, that false teachers would arise among them to draw away disciples after themselves. And in that same text, he says, the only way you can be protected from that, the only thing that will save you from being drawn away after these, these men who will be seeking disciples for themselves, the only thing that will protect you is your knowledge of the Word of God. 
because he said he had not failed to teach them the whole counsel of the Word of God. Again, Acts 20, 26-32. If we're going to keep new converts, and they're going to become old converts, <laughs> they're going to become lifelong, and I mean eternal lifelong Christians, they have to understand that the only way they're going to be kept from being led astray is by constant knowledge of the Word of God, by Bible study. That's it. You know, Corky's been teaching us on Sunday mornings from the book of Jude, and three types of false teacher that will be amongst us are those like Cain, and those like Balaam, and those like Korah. And you know, I don't have time tonight to do this, but it's amazing how much of a parallel you see. For those of you that are in that class, as you read through Jude, if you want to see an almost, well, not almost perfect, but if you want to see a, a, almost a mirror image of what Jude is talking about, read the second chapter of Second Peter. It's amazing how similar they are. But the point is, speaking of Cain, Balaam, and Korah from Jude, the point is that false teachers are created and motivated by a variety of different reasons. Stop and think about those three. Some false teachers are motivated out of laziness or a lack of respect for God's authority, such as Cain. Such as these mentioned right here in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 11, as well as many in the denominational world around us today. You say, laziness? Well, they're busy. No, I'm talking about laziness when it comes to studying God's Word. Either that or a lack of authority for it. Others, other false teachers may be motivated by greed, such as Balaam was motivated by greed, as Corky has taught us. These mentioned here in 2 Peter 2, 1-3 were motivated by greed, as well as some in the denominational world around us. Some false teachers are motivated out of pride or a lust for personal power, like Korah. Or those we read about in Acts chapter 20 that the Apostle Paul pointed out. As well as some in the denominational world around us. And you know, sometimes it is impossible. I don't want to judge people's motives. I really don't. Sometimes it is impossible. It is just totally impossible to tell exactly what each and all of the factors are that would contribute to an otherwise avid, logical, and intelligent religious person twisting or tweaking or perverting or not teaching the entire truth of the Word of God. Sometimes you just can't figure out what their motivation is. You really can't. But either way, I've got this emboldened on my notes because this is a critical point. Either way, many of these false teachers, as well as their distortions and perversions of the truth of the Word of God, they are loved, they are revered, and they are respected and even trusted beyond God and His Word. Some false teachers are so loved and respected and revered that they are loved, respected, and revered more than God Himself. And certainly their words more than God's clear black and white 
word, and even on such crucial topics as one's very own eternal salvation. A little under two weeks ago, Billy Graham passed away. In a story from a news feed that I get, on February the 21st there was a story, and these are some excerpts from it. It said, Dr. Richard Land, president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary and former head of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, believes that if there were an evangelical Mount Rushmore, Billy Graham would be the first person on it. Before I go any further, I want to tell you, this is straight up. This is not an emotional thing. This is not a bashing thing. This is just simply straight up scripture. Watch what happens eventually. Dr. Richard Land points out that Graham preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in the world and is responsible for the Lord leading millions of people to Christ. I heard the number somewhere estimated at 200 million that he had preached to. He continues, his legacy will be that he's the greatest preacher of the gospel in at least the last thousand years and maybe the greatest preacher of the gospel since the apostles, Dr. Land submits. Land knows personally of Billy Graham's reach as his own father accepted Jesus as Savior at a 1950s Billy Graham crusade. And we all know what accepting Jesus as Savior means. Say this prayer and welcome Jesus into your heart. As I look down through that news feed, these are some of the accolades that continued. And you know, when it says he was the greatest preacher since the apostles, I think of a man who did not preach the full gospel, did not preach baptism as essential for salvation. And I wonder what the apostle Paul would have said about that. I know what he would have said because I can read Galatians 1, 6 through 10, and I know very well. But at any rate, the accolades continued. One person said he loved the Lord and would do anything to see people come to Christ. Except, as we'll see in a moment, preach the full gospel. Another accolade said only God knows how many are there with him because of his ministry and how many more there will be. There are a lot of people with Billy Graham. I would agree with that. Billy Graham was exceptional for not compromising gospel essentials in his proclamation. This was one of the points. For not compromising gospel essentials in his proclamation. Another comment. I know Billy Graham has a special mansion in heaven built just for him. Another comment. Billy can give St. Peter a rest and hold open the gates of heaven. He was that revered. That in itself shows a complete and total, absolute lack of understanding about the Word of God. When Jesus said to Peter that he would give him the keys to the kingdom, he did that in Acts 2. Peter had the keys to the church, the kingdom, and Peter opened the church up that day. There's not going to be Peter as the doorkeeper. A newsflash for all those jokes that have, you know, St. Peter at the pearly gate letting people in. That's not what Jesus was talking about. The lack of knowledge here is incomparable. Doug, why are you bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because there's millions of people that don't understand that the Word of God is the only way to heaven. 
And it doesn't matter how well-loved the person is. It doesn't matter how revered or respected they are. It doesn't matter how many letters are after the name. It doesn't matter how many sermons they've preached. If they're not preaching the full gospel that is in black and white, book, chapter, and verse in the New Testament, then they're not preaching the full gospel. And the full gospel is the only way to heaven. I continue with his accolades momentarily. Reverend Graham can now truly say with the Apostle Paul that he finished the course and he kept the faith. My question, which faith? Because it's certainly not the faith seen in the New Testament because in every example of the faith once delivered for all the saints, Jude 3, in every example of conversion to the faith that God talks about, the one faith of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, those people were converted to Christ and they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That is how the faith in the Bible works. So when this person says, he kept the faith. It's not the same faith I see in the New Testament. Moving on. Another person said, I did believe that if there was one person now alive who would get the privilege of seeing the rapture instead of death, it was Reverend Graham. Another complete... Douglas, why are you doing this? I'm doing this because I want us to understand. There's millions of people out there who believe there's rapture coming. They don't understand what Revelation's talking about. They don't understand that the, the, this rapture idea and the millennial thousand year reign and the three and a half years and Jesus coming back and all that stuff we studied a while back... That's all a man-made doctrine. The rapture, as people teach it in a lot of these denominations, is a farce. It's a joke. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. Not even close. And if people are not locked on in understanding that the only way to heaven is what that book actually says, and if they don't study it, understanding there is no other way to heaven, they're going to be misled by this. There's millions out there that are today. Millions... And we may even have the opportunity to study with some of those people that have bought into this rapture thing. That have bought into this prayer of faith thing. And we have got to lovingly get them to understand that the only way to heaven is the way that is between Genesis and Revelation. Because we're probably going to hear some strange things. Billy's accolades went on. Some called him the Christian Pope. Maybe so. When he preached, he was never boring. Of course, that's the worst thing that a preacher can have against the day boy. If they're boring, that's, that's, that's all. It's like when your teenager says, I'm bored. I mean, that's worse than mama and dad, I'm pregnant. It, it, today, boy, boredom is the thing. When he was preached, he was never boring, always being prepared with wonderful stories that left you feeling closer to God. We know what feelings are worth. We know that King Saul felt compelled to give the sacrifice and Samuel said, you've acted foolishly. We know that Saul of Tarsus felt as though he felt compelled to make these people blaspheme, these Christians and all that, and cast his vote against them, Acts 26, 9 through 11. But we know that his feelings were wrong. So finally, I put something up. I didn't think they'd post it. I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this as gently as I know how. But this is what I posted. I am sorry, by the way, for the family's loss. It's hard to lose a father, a grandfather, all of those things. Okay. So I put, I am very sorry for the Graham family's loss, and I am. 
But I am sadder still that at least according to everything I have ever heard from or about his teaching, that he did not teach what the apostles did, insofar as how and when one initially receives God's gift of forgiveness and is saved. And I put a whole bunch of verses down, and you know them all. But he taught that salvation is obtained through saying a prayer and welcoming Jesus into one's heart, something that is never seen in any example of conversion to Christ in God's word that I have ever found. So sad on so many levels. Now, if I was saying that to you, I'd be a little stronger. But I want them to go look in the Bible. That's why I said nothing I've ever found because they think, well, you know, Billy said it and I'm going to go find it. Praise God. Go dig in his word. Find it. Got a response. Lady wrote back, so I can assume that you are referring to water baptism as a requirement for salvation. These are the verses I lifted, listed. Acts 2.37-47, Acts 22.16, Romans 6.1-4, Galatians 3.26-7, Ephesians 4.4-6, and 1 Peter 3.21. And she says, so I can assume that you are referring to water baptism as a requirement for salvation. Okay, so far so good. And then this is what she said. I don't remember any scripture noting that Jesus baptized. I personally claim the verses that speak of being baptized by the Holy Spirit and sealed with Christ and set apart until the day of redemption. Do not think I'm criticizing your viewpoint. Did you catch that? I personally claim these verses. I go into smorgasbord, right? Well, I don't like that and that, but boy, I like this. Give me an extra help into that, but I'm not, I don't want to deal with those verses over there. But boy, I'll take a generous help into that, because I, I can get sick on that, because I really like it. I'm not criticizing your viewpoint. In other words, if you want to eat asparagus or Brussels sprouts or in that spiritual, that's fine. But not me, man. You can eat what you want. I'll eat what I want, and we'll all get full. That's... I didn't give her my viewpoint, I gave her book, chapter, and verse. Then she says, Doug, I'm just grateful to God for the gift of salvation and the wealth of wisdom available to all believers through God's word. This is why we must teach people to rely only on the Bible. We've had a folder out in our foyer for some time now. It's an old tract, and I want to read a lot of it to you. It's an old tract that's called Baptism, the Bible, and Billy Graham. It's written by Garland Elkins and James McGill several, quite a few years ago. They put this together to hand out, as I understand it, in their community just before Billy Graham crusade was coming somewhere close or something like that. But let me just hit the highlights. As Billy Graham closes his sermons, he often tells his hearers that there are three things they must do. Number one, repent. Number two, believe. Number three, live for Jesus. Billy Graham was consistently named, has consistently named these three things that every accountable person must do to be saved. He has preached this message to countless millions in crusades, over radio, on television, in newspaper articles, and in books for more than half a century. Number one, repent. Number two, believe. Number three, live for Jesus. We may wonder why he places repentance before faith. Think about that. In the recorded instances of conversion from the time the church began in the New Testament book of Acts, it was faith that came first and that motivated and led to the additional acts of obedience. Why would you repent before you believe? 
Isn't it your belief in Jesus as the Son of God that would cause you to repent? And yet it was repent first, believe second, and three, live faithful. Anyway, moving on. For half a century, Billy Graham has consistently failed to include baptism when he tells those seeking salvation what they must do to be saved. Billy Graham has been reading from the scriptures and using passages from the Bible in his preaching for more than 50 years. Now the most puzzling question ever, how could Billy Graham have failed to see in the Bible the command to be baptized for the remission of sins? Billy Graham readily sees the command to believe in Mark 16, 16, which says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He clearly sees the commandment to repent in Acts 2.38, which says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Yet somehow, incredible as it seems, he has never seen Jesus' command to be baptized to be saved. Mark 16, 16, or the command to be baptized for the remission of sins in Acts 2.38. He sees one element, but he misses the other. The tract continues. Seemingly all through the years, Billy Graham has looked at these Bible verses as though they read as follows. He that believeth shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. And repent... Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Acts 2.38 How could Billy Graham have failed to see Jesus' words and is baptized in Mark 16.16? 16? How could Billy Graham have overlooked Peter's words and be baptized in Acts 2.38? This is not a new question. About 50 years ago, during the Billy Graham month-long crusade in Nashville at the Vanderbilt University football stadium, someone asked a member of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association team this question directly. Here's that question. Why does Billy Graham not include the command to be baptized in his preaching? The short and very unsatisfactory answer was, because it is a controversial subject. A further insight into this strange phenomenon came to light a few years later with the publication of Leslie L. Spears' book entitled, The True Religion and Religion of Others. When that book was published, one chapter attracted immediate attention and created intense interest. Chapter 2. An exchange of letters between the author and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in Minneapolis was the title of chapter 2. The first letter, dated January the 12th, 1963, was written by Leslie L. Spear from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, in response to a Billy Graham, My Answer column that had just appeared in the Knoxville Journal. An inquirer had asked Billy Graham, Please give me a simple answer to... What must I do to be saved? Billy Graham completely failed to mention baptism in his reply. In Leslie Spears' letter to Billy Graham, he quoted the words of Jesus. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Spears says that Graham might have included that scripture as part of an appropriate answer to the question, What must I do to be saved? He could have used that verse, Spears said. Spear then quotes the words of Paul the Apostle in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
At this point in his letter, Leslie Spear puts his first direct question to Billy Graham. After telling him, hey, you could have used Mark 16, 16 in responding to that. You could have used Galatians 3, 26 and 7. Then Spear asks him a direct question. Mr. Graham, why didn't you give Paul's answer to the question? You could have told where it was found so the person could have read it for himself. Now that's a completely honest If you're going to give an answer to somebody to a question, you give them book, chapter, and verse, tell them go look it up themselves. On April the 17th, 1963, Leslie Spear received a reply from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It was signed by John D. Lundberg, spiritual counselor. At last, there was to be an answer to this puzzling question. But the part of the answer that responds directly to the question is very brief. Here was the answer. Salvation is not dependent upon a person having been baptized. There it is. I'm still reading. When people have been steeped in centuries of religious prejudice, they can somehow read right through all the scriptures that teach clearly that obedience in baptism is necessary for salvation. They can read right through them. The doctrine that salvation can occur before and without baptism for the remission of sins has been preached millions of times since it first began to be taught in Europe five centuries ago. That doctrine... Five centuries ago, this prayer of faith thing in the whole Westminster Assembly in the 1600s, where the prayer of faith came from, that doctrine has been repeated so many times that even otherwise able men like Billy Graham have been saturated with it. They were taught the doctrine just as if it were true and even biblical. Yet to say that obedience in baptism is not necessary for salvation is just as false as it was when men like John Calvin invented and propagated that doctrine in the 1500s. The result? Three more paragraphs from this tract. Think of the multiplied millions who have heard and accepted Billy Graham's teaching. Every one of these souls will one day stand before God in the great day of judgment. They will not be able to account for why they were not baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, except to say, honestly, Billy Graham didn't tell me I had to do that. And Billy Graham will face God in judgment too, as will all people, great and small, must do. What will he answer if God asks, Billy, why did you never tell all those millions that they must be baptized to be saved? For any of you at this point that might be sitting there thinking that I'm being unfair, it's easy to pick on a guy once he's gone. A number of months ago I received in the mail to the church an invitation for us to attend a Billy Graham association get together I think it was in Oklahoma City but I don't remember exactly where it was they sent out to all these churches oh come and you know I sent them a copy of that tract I didn't hear back from them but it's not a matter of picking on somebody after they're no longer around but what I want for you to understand tonight, with all the love in my heart, there are millions of people who will take the words of somebody who's not preaching the full gospel over and above what God said. We have got to emphasize to people that the only way to heaven is book, 
chapter and verse. It is the gospel and it must be obeyed. We must submit ourselves to God. That's what repentance is all about. And until and unless we do that and continually grow in the word so that we're not pulled off that straight and narrow path, we're not going to make it. Furthermore, for those who might think I'm being unfair, you can go like I did to www.billygraham.org. He has a website. Who doesn't these days, right? There's a question on there. You can Google it. It says, is baptism essential for salvation? This is what the website says. To one who has received Christ. You can't receive Christ without being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And I know what he means by that, and that's another whole sermon, but you can't receive Christ while you're still in your sins, and you are still in your sins until you're baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. So this doesn't work. But anyway, the response says, to one who has received Christ, baptism is a necessary and meaningful experience. You may know that we urge immediate and extensive Bible study for each convert. As the scripture is reviewed, the place of baptism will surely be discovered. In other words, you are been converted. You haven't been baptized yet, but if you study your Bible, you'll find out that baptism is probably a really good and meaningful thing to do once you've been converted and saved. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is it? No. Then it closes with this. If baptism, this is from billygram.org, if baptism were a requirement for salvation, we would certainly say that. But you couldn't support that knowing, for example, that the thief on the cross had no opportunity for baptism or church membership. That is the answer. Of course he didn't have an opportunity for church membership because the church hadn't been established yet. And Hebrews 9, 15 through 17, he lived and died under the Old Covenant and baptism for the forgiveness of one's sins was not an Old Testament requirement. Jesus was born and died under the Old Law. The thief on the cross died under the Old Law. He didn't have to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. In the last recorded words of the Apostle Peter talking about false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, I want us to notice this and then we'll close. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. It says this. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved Paul, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things which are, some of them are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. The point is this. No matter how wonderful a person is, no matter how kind, no matter how much of a gentleman they are, no matter how much they're respected or revered, the bottom line is that only by being strangers and aliens, and believe me, you voice some of this stuff, you're really going to be seen as a stranger to, every, to, to the tide of public opinion. But we as strangers and aliens must know this book. 
And we need to stress to new converts, the only way to heaven is this book. It's not Billy Graham. It's not Doug Dingley. It's not any of the preachers that were affirming the faith this weekend. It's not Joel Olstein. It's not anybody else. It is what God said. You have got to know your Bible. Period. This is why we must constantly study and why I'm hoping that some of you, more of you, will sign up to study with people. There's nothing greater than leading people to know God. Maybe you're somebody here tonight who has never obeyed the gospel for the forgiveness of your sins. You may have believed you were saved at some other point and then later baptized. I beg you to really look at the conversion examples in the book of Acts. There's nobody else that matters. I don't matter. I don't. No gospel preacher matters. Unless they are teaching what the Word of God actually says. You are going to answer to God. You need to make sure that according to God's authority, you are right with God, despite what anybody says, how much money they've got, how many followers they've got, how much of an education they've got. You have got to follow God's word if you want to go to heaven. If you have a need tonight, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?